This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Whew, it's taken a while. Gavin DeBecker, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Happy to be here. Thank you, too. Thanks for all your work, by the way. As you may know, I'm here because I was referred to you somewhere online, started watching you, also saw your cartoons, and I'm a big fan. Well, thanks, Gavin. I, I have been trying... Well, I know actually both of us have been trying to set this up for a long time. And I was hoping, as I said to you earlier, I was hoping to have read your book by now. But the problem is I live in Africa <laughs> and the postal service is atrocious. So I haven't <laughs> I haven't even received my book yet. I know that it's somewhere in the matrix in, on the African continent, but <laughs> it just I haven't got it. So we, I'm going to have to go blind. Yeah. No worries, I can help, and also I can do a reading from the book uh, during our talk today. I'll do a few few chapters for you. <laughs> um, you're in Hawaii right now. That's that's uh, that's quite close to Edward Dodd, isn't it? Yes, uh, it, we, he and I know each other. We're on the same island. He's about forty five minutes away, and uh, we occasionally have meetings right in this room. Excuse my ignorance, but how big is Hawaii? Can you drive around the island? Yes, I think on this island it is probably a uh, probably be a seven-hour drive, but also because the roads are quite bad. So this is the second biggest island in Hawaii. And if we go any further in this discussion about Hawaii, I will start to be foolish because I don't know much about it. Oh, are you are you new to Hawaii? S six years, but very busy. Oh right, um, Hawaii is one of those places though that every kid in the world wants to visit one day for a surfing and that sort of tropical paradise vibe is it like that it is it's very lovely i mean the main island of hawaii where honolulu is uh is like las vegas it's a very congested busy city it doesn't call me at all uh, we also have a home in fiji and that is real tropical paradise so this to me is sort of in the middle of of fiji and and the u.s lifestyle in that we have here big stores and you know national chains and what have you and also beautiful beaches but not empty we have three million visitors a year whereas where we live in fiji is a very remote island with a 200 person village that way and a 200 person village that way that's more my style why fiji about uh i've been there for 25 years i raised seven kids there and um i think um I just fell in love with it. A friend of mine invited me to go, and I didn't really know where it was or what it was. I fell in love with it. I bought a piece of property, then I bought some more, then I bought the property next door and, and built my homes there. And it is, I was originally studying it for my book, The Gift of Fear, because it was a fascinating example of a culture that moved from being among the most violent in world history, I'll tell you, give you an example in a minute, to today where it is arguably the least violent culture in the world. Um, you know, 200 years ago, if a chief died, uh, they would kill teenagers and kill his wife and throw them in the grave with him, uh, sometimes not fully killed. If they built a new building, they would bury teenagers in the post holes and then put the posts in. Uh, they would, uh, you know, have massive uh, mass uh, killings, mass meaning a few hundred people, and then have a massive feast because, as you know, they were cannibals. So they went from that kind of culture, uh, probably... Uh, by killing off all the testosterone males 
and uh, and ended up being this extraordinarily low crime and low violence culture. It's an extraordinary place. I'm going to create a segue uh, a little bit later because I live in South Africa, which is the crime capital of the world, and fear is part and parcel of living here. So I think there's yes. a there's a very easy conversation to have there. But Gavin, what is your background? Well, I started in uh, my first experiences of violence were as a child. I saw my mother shoot my stepfather when I was 10 years old. Uh, my mother was a heroin addict who uh, committed suicide when she was 39. I was 16. I saw a lot of violence. We were on government welfare, very poor, and always in, in uh, you know lower income neighborhoods. And so my early introduction to fear and violence was that, and like millions of other kids, um, I developed the strategies for figuring out early, is this going to be one of those days where violence occurs? And what are the indicators? What was the behavior there? Uh, you know, children of, uh, let's say, an alcoholic father or stepfather who's violent, they might know when he opens the beer, uh, you know, after getting home from work that they're headed for trouble. Or they might know when he shows up home early that they're headed for trouble. Or when he shows up late. My point is there are always pre-incident indicators. Uh, for violence with human beings and kids become experts at reading them fast forward uh when i'm 10 years old uh, president john kennedy is killed i happen to be home from school and it had a big impact on me it was sort of like the he was sort of a father figure to me in the absence of a father figure and so it was sort of like the loss of a father it stayed with me and by the time i was 18 uh, i was now reading every conceivable document about uh, that assassination and i developed theories about it and at 19 i got a job by a series of amazing uh, circumstances with elizabeth taylor and richard burton they were the most famous couple in the world she was a, you're a little young you might or might not know uh and and uh, so 1920 and 21 i went to work for them and by a series of everybody above me being fired i ended up being the what was called the chief of traveling staff and security and logistics and crowd control and all of that was my responsibility even though I was unqualified basically here I was and so I had to learn to do it my way probably the biggest trip we made was to Johannesburg in 1975 right as uh, apartheid was being tested the most and um, you know if we put our car out in front of the hotel in Johannesburg there'd be 5,000 people there and we had motorcycle police escorts everywhere and we met with the state president and met with the you know went to Pretoria and and met with all the government leaders and also had our rooms bugged uh, by the Bureau of State Security and and uh, had to be very careful what we discussed inside the hotel rooms and very interesting experience early experience of, um, of public figure protection very quickly after that I wrote a report uh, on public figure protection in the private sector and it got picked up by the federal government here in America called the National Criminal Justice Reference Service sent to every police department in America and suddenly I was a bit well known but everybody assumed that I was a 50 year old former FBI agent or something and so when I would get asked to do a speech and I would show up at uh, you know 22 years old with a darkened in mustache to look older um, people would say well, looking around me well where's your dad and I, uh, I would give these speeches. I had um, nerve. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I was a good writer. So I continued to write on the topic. And I basically made it my life's work to research public figure attacks in America and around the world. And at about 26, uh, President Ronald Reagan, who was the oldest president in America, appointed me to his advisory board at the Department of Justice. 
and uh, I was the youngest presidential appointee. He was the oldest president. I served a few terms on that. Then President Bush Sr., not the one you might know, um, appointed me to another presidential appointment. I did a lot of work, a lot of writing, and um, a lot of research, and a lot of research with the federal government in the United States. And, um, and then I, in 1997, by now I had a big company. And I was advising public figures on on issues related to their safety. And uh, and in 1997, I wrote uh, a book called The Gift of Fear. That became a big New York Times bestseller on every television show in America. Oprah Winfrey did uh, did a bunch of shows. And then at the 10 year anniversary, she did another show about it and then another show in, in the last year of her show. And um, it's a, still, by the way, after 25 years or whatever it's been, it's still the biggest selling book in the world on violence. I like it a lot. I read it occasionally because I had to do the audio book for it again recently, a, re a revised edition. And uh, so that's called The Gift of Fear. And then I wrote a bunch of other books uh, since then and, and uh, a lot of very public work uh, and a lot of very private work and a lot of uh, work related to at-risk public figures, uh, iconic media figures, iconic religious figures, uh, uh, corporate leaders are clients and the kinds of people that are clients. About 90 of the most prominent families in America and Europe, uh, we protect the, uh, the families. What do you think was a bigger event between JFK's assassination and 9-11? I think uh, JFK's assassination had an impact on the whole, it was the first world event to have an impact on billions of people all within 40 seconds. That had never happened before. In fact, in my research, I found that there were people after Abraham Lincoln's assassination who did not learn about it during their lifetimes. They lived in remote parts of America and, and somebody would say, you know, Abraham Lincoln was killed. He was. When did that happen? Seven years ago. And so the media age brought the Kennedy assassination to be the first world event that impacted everyone exactly at the same time. Even the dropping of bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima was not as big because there was not the, the early uh, beginnings of mass media. 9-11 uh, had probably a greater um, policy and public control and governmental impact uh, on the whole world very quickly, where the United States became... Um, the clear global uh, bully uh, and changed finance laws. I mean, so many laws changed around 9-11. Uh, uh, I would, by the way, quickly compare it to the present moment, which is to say that the COVID um, experience is the biggest event in world history, uh, much bigger than World War II. World War II had an impact on, on those few countries that were actually involved. But uh, to have every human being on Earth told to stay in their homes, and I don't mean that it happened in every case because subsistence farmers didn't do it and people in remote villages didn't do it and many people in African countries didn't do it. But to have the entire Western world um, surrender uh, their freedom entirely and stay in their homes without a shot being fired other than, than this shot, which came later on, um, <laughs> is the biggest is the biggest event in world history, mm. uh, and 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 will likely remain so uh, until some other you know giant global event can be done. I had this conversation uh, not too long ago, and I said the same thing as you that I also think it's the largest event. And funnily enough, it's it's the same story. Your story is the same as my story, and even the terminology is the same. 
the entire thing was centered around fear. Now you make the claim, Gavin, yes. that fear is a gift. Uh, so there are two, in, in saying that fear is a gift, I define uh, fear accurately, which is fear in its accurate definition is a signal in the presence of danger. That's how animals use it out in the veldt in, in uh, South Africa. And that's how people use it when they are actually in the presence of danger. That fear, like that, I see the snake, I, I see the, the robber with the gun, whatever. That is a gift. And no animal in nature would want to be without it for an instant because it is the gift that keeps people safe. The other definition of fear, which is not true fear, is called unwarranted fear. And unwarranted fear is something in your imagination or your memory. And so it is unwarranted fear when it is programmed for us by the, by the local news or by the national news. That is not true fear. That is unwarranted fear. Now, both of them have an effect on us in terms of our uh, everything, our respiration, uh, the amount of, of uh, uh, chemicals that are released into our body, in particular, a chemical called cortisol. Everybody's familiar with adrenaline. That's a famous one. But very few people are familiar with cortisol, which is another brain chemical that is released into the body, does some very interesting things. It hardens the muscles for running or for fighting. It actually withdraws blood from some areas so that you are more able to be stabbed or pierced uh, and to resist it. So cortisol is very, very valuable. However, it's toxic. You can't live with cortisol all the time. You can have cortisol, <gasps> when I see the snake on the ground, that's what cortisol's for. But when you, when you live in a sustained state of fear, as has been gifted to us by, um, by governments all over the world in the last three years, that is very bad for you. It will kill you over time. It destroys your ability to reason thoughtfully. And it, if all of your reactions are a reaction to fear, they are, um, they are uh, destabilizing to your well-being and your serenity. And that is what allows governments, not just governments, Witch doctors, uh, you know, a thousand years ago in the village would say, you know, Jeremy, you've got the uh, you've got the snake in your soul. You've got the devil in your soul. And if I wave these beads, only I can get rid of it. That is no different from Fauci saying only I can tell you whether you have this particular disease or virus because only I define it and only we do the tests and create the tests and how they work. And so we'll tell you if you have it, since you can't tell by symptoms because it could be asymptomatic. Well, humorously, for all of our lives prior to three years ago, uh, something that was asymptomatic meant you ain't sick. And, and now all of a sudden you're a case. Well, a case of pneumonia meant you're you know, coughing and have a fever and you're sitting in the hospital. A case of COVID means you tested positive once eight months ago. Now you're a counted case. So my, just, to, just to finish that segue, fear is not a gift when it is used by people in power to control populations. But it's also not true fear. True fear would be, I walk outside, there's a lion. That's true fear. I, I you know, a war, war zone, I, missiles are coming down. That's true fear. But being warned about the coming war and how the enemy is coming over the wall and the enemy is going to be our problem reminds me of, you know, uh, uh, Rome for 300 years after the invasion of the Gauls, they were still using that fear as uh, as a way to control the population they could be coming they could be coming we have to build up this military all the time and so uh that's what governments do small governments right down to the village of 200 people and big governments control populations by fear and it's gotten scientifically remarkable 
the strategies. 1984 was not really, it's close, mm. it's brilliant, but even 1984 would not go as far as we have gone now, where uh, I watched yesterday, uh, uh, I know this is a long answer, Jeremy, but yesterday I was looking at um, Google Trends, which is a feature you can use and you can see what, what searches are trending. So you can see exactly uh, live, and a day ago, last 24 hours, last five years, you can see exactly what were people searching for. This is basically a look into the human mind, uh, the psyche of the population. So I'm mm -hmm. President Biden. I give a speech. And a day later, I can see whether people are writing, a, I mean, are, are searching for information on monkeypox, for example. I can see where it trends among all the other searches, the football game up here, monkeypox number five, you know, et cetera. So the look into our psyche has never been more profound for those in power uh, than it is today. Does a lion fear? Well, I'm going to use another animal because the lion is called the king of the jungle uh, because of its fearlessness. Uh, the real <laughs> king of the jungle, as you know, living there is absolutely and obviously the elephant, not the lion. Uh, the elephant has absolutely no, uh, no adversary of any consequence. It could walk around a group of lions with, and absolutely ignore them. Uh, but the, the lion has the reputation because it, it stands and looks right at you until you open the car door. And then, of course, it, it takes off or get out of the car. It'll take off in almost all cases. But I want to use another animal as an example, which is a coyote or a wolf. Um, imagine that two wolves meet on some uh, mountainous trail somewhere. And they look at each other and they smell each other. And then one of them, the ears fall back and the fur on his back uh, shows, and then it begins to show its teeth, and then it attacks the other wolf. That victim wolf does not say, oh man, that came out of nowhere. I had no idea that was coming. Well, similarly, we human beings exchange signals before violence, and they are detectable. And does a lion fear? Yes, a lion feels fear in the presence of danger, and when it does, it takes action. But human beings do an interesting thing. It's uh, 10 o'clock at night. A woman has worked late in the office building, 20 stories. She calls for the elevator. The door opens up. And inside the elevator is a man who causes her fear because of his size, because of how he's dressed. Whatever the reasons are, she feels fear. What does she do? She gets into a steel soundproofed chamber with someone she's afraid of. And there's not an animal in nature that would even remotely consider doing such a thing if it had an alternative. So a lion does not engage in fighting if it has alternatives because animals in nature know that to be opened and infected is to die. You, you, you try to avoid injury. Even a shark tries to avoid injury. Watches very carefully before making a test strike. Does a test strike first, backs up, sees how the animal reacts, and then if all goes well, goes ahead and, and goes in for its meal. But all animals are very careful except human beings. Human beings can be persuaded to override their fear, to prosecute their own fear. And uh, they can also be controlled as a result of fear. When you're afraid, you just want to take whatever train is leaving the station, even if it's not going where you want to go. And we've seen the entire Western world in the early days of COVID say, please, daddy, tell us what to do. Daddy government, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. And so fear really, really is the ultimate control mechanism uh, and uh, and it's we see it's worked very well in the last three years. But just uh, adding to your example now of the lady climbing into the lift, 
she climbs into the lift with i'm guessing a correlated sense of courage no i would call that a correlated sense of denial uh what because why did she do it she did it because i don't want to be the kind of person who doesn't get into the lift because the guy's hispanic i don't want right. to be the kind of person who's afraid all the time i don't want to be the kind of person who insults him maybe if he thinks that i don't like him he'll be more dangerous all these are flawed thoughts she has prosecuted her natural intuition uh which by the way interestingly uh, intuition the word means uh, that comes from the root in tear it means to guard and to protect so when you have an intuition about someone, when you think, I don't trust this guy, what's actually happening is you are protecting yourself, if you listen. If you prosecute your intuition and bang it into the ground and do what you, you, know, what you think is right or what you think you should do, uh, then you are ignoring this most remarkable survival instinct, survival mechanism, I should say. So where does intuition come from? Is it learned or is it organic? Well, it might. There's a third option as well: is it spiritual? Uh, and so it's a it's a an interesting question. I believe that it is a thought process uh, that is using all of the uh, all of the brain cells in our body. And remember, there's a few hundred thousand brain cells in our gut. That's why it's called a gut feeling. In fact, there's more brain cells, more neurons in our gut than there are in the brain of a dog. Meaning, our gut is rather brilliant and so the whole system is brought in with smell with hearing with taste and sight the whole system comes in and says i don't feel safe in this underground parking lot for some reason now it might be something i saw an hour ago that i don't even remember oh that car it might be that the car engine was clink clink clinking which means it's hot it might be the smell of something it might be so many things i, I have a, a, a story I think in Gift of Fear, and I remember a person telling it to me that he went downstairs thinking there might be somebody there, and he suddenly walked into a puff of cigarette smoke. He didn't say, ah, a puff of cigarette smoke. He just tore ass back upstairs because the same thing. I'm going like this with my hands, and I realize, oh, there's a bee in my hair. Well, I don't say, hey, bee in my hair. Shall I move my hands up here and do this? The whole mind-body organism reacts. So I believe it is both organic and intellectual, uh, but it's a process of getting from A to Z without stopping at all the letters on the way. There's no logic in it. Intuition sends you the fear signal, and if you're smart, you react and you act uh, without needing to persuade yourself first. So intuition and logic compete. They do. They do. And in, in, in Western society, logic is considered rather remarkable and wonderful and if i show you my powerpoint presentation and abc and here's why i did it but if i say to the corporate uh, boardroom you know i think we're gonna buy that thing we're gonna go and enter that deal and they say why it's just a gut feeling in the west we say gut feeling that's for women what are you talking about um but in reality it's actually a far more brilliant process than my powerpoint uh, presentation so everybody has intuition, but the pre-incident indicators, the PINs, we call it P-I-N-S in my work and in Gift of Fear, um, they differ. And so for me in the war zone in Iraq, that's one set of pre-incident indicators. A little kid running away might be giving the signal to the you know, suicide bomber. And for me in, uh, you know, in the farm uh, in South Dakota, uh, there's a different set of pre-incident indicators and there are different kinds of risks. A very clean example is that Americans go and 
meet a, you know a British person and say, my God, how can you live in London with those car bombings done by the IRA? And the British citizens said, my God, how can you live in Los Angeles with all those carjackings where somebody walks up with a gun? They're just different risks, and, and we are tuned differently. And so we learn the pre-incident indicators, and they can be falsified, meaning they can be inaccurate. I'll give you a fast example. I was giving a speech at CIA maybe 15 years ago, and I, w- I gave them the example that Um, kangaroos attack about 50 people a year in Australia. And they always show the same three signals before the attack, I told the audience at the CIA. They check their pouch to be sure they don't have young with them. They look behind them to be sure they haven't escaped uh, because they are big and bulky. And they seem to grin, but they're actually showing their teeth uh, like that. And so some tourists look at that and say, oh, look, he's smiling. But the reality is they should be afraid because kangaroos then viciously attack and quickly retreat. So those are three pre-incident indicators prior to a kangaroo attack. However, I made them all up. They're bullshit. They're not true. (laughs) And so what happens is that everybody in that audience at CIA, and now you and your audience, will remember those forever. I could I could quiz you on those in five years and you'd say, let me see. They look at their young, they check behind them and they show their teeth because we're trained to take on those pre-incident indicators because they matter to us. They are how we survive. I would submit to you that women in almost every culture on earth and certainly in Western cultures have to rely upon intuition more frequently than men. If I ask the average man in, in America, in the U.S., um, when's the last time you were afraid for your safety? Most people say, uh, they really can't think of it. But if I ask a woman the same question, she'll say, last night, when I parked the car, today, when I made a decision about how to get from A to Z. Now, in South Africa, and I've been there, and, li- and been there a lot. I was there for six months once. I've had five or six trips. I love it. Um, yes, you know, it's, uh, Johannesburg, parts of Joburg, parts of every big city, are, are sort of higher crime areas than most people are used to, and you're more alert and you're more watchful. But your intuition is ultimately, the human intuition is the same. And would mine serve me in South Africa? Yes. However, there'd be a lot of things I wouldn't know. You'd say, hey, that's a particular gang over there. I'd say that to mm-hmm. you in New York. Oh, don't screw with those guys. And you might know the the pre-incident indicators, behaviors. Oh, I saw that guy earlier. Those two guys are working together. We're about to get mugged. You might detect it earlier based on the on the pre-incident indicators in South Africa, and I might detect it earlier walking down the street with you in Los Angeles. Uh, but it's the same animal, the human animal. How accurate is intuition? Can I give you an example? Um, when I when I traveled uh, a few years ago to um, <laughs> to Sydney, I was the only person who arrived on the other side whose luggage had been wrapped in bubble wrap and the only reason why that's the case is because (laughs) because we are used to our bags being broken open nobody else had done that so i acted on an intuition of protecting my luggage but on the other side i looked like an idiot (laughs) yes understood so i'll 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 tell you that my view of intuition is that it is always right in at least two important ways it always is based on something and it always has your best interest at heart. Now, will the predictions made always be accurate? No, because so many things can change. For example, I get an intuitive feeling. Did I leave the pot burning on the on the stove? And I turn the car around and I go back 
and it isn't burning on the stove. I had turned it off. So my, my, the, the core basis was wrong. But what I've learned is there will always be some other valuable reason that I turned around. You say, oh my God, I didn't lock the front door. I didn't realize it's that. In other words, intuition is much more, um, it's less judgmental. It, it, logic is plodding. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. It's plodding and slow uh, and, uh, and unimpressive and, uh, and biased and full of judgment and how will I look and what will... And intuition doesn't give a shit about any of that stuff. It just gives you the fear signal mm. and, and fear. Ultimately, we have many signals from intuition. We have curiosity. Oh, why did you say that, Jeremy? We have um, wonder. We have uh, gut feelings. We have intuitions. We have all, all variety of signals that we get. But the truest survival signal is fear. That's the one that the body says, you cannot ignore this one. And you really can't, by the way. True fear in the presence of danger. People don't say, eh, I'll think about that later. And even a lion you know, in, in Southern Africa does not feel true fear or hear, let's say, a, a branch breaking nearby and feel fear because it's too close or it didn't realize there was an animal there. No lion ever says, oh, it's probably nothing. Are they vectors? Um, that interfere with 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 intuition, such as yes. anxiety or or let's say instinct. Yes, well, instinct is a different thing, uh, which I would argue people don't really have. Animals have instinct, uh, which is you know uh, basically uh, memory and information that is is uh, in the organism already. We seem to have two built-in fears, human beings: fear of loud noises and fear of falling. Those are it. Whereas the lion has a wide variety of like anything it sees that it doesn't fully uh, understand, uh, it reacts to. But I, but I want to talk to you about what defeats intuition. The main thing that defeats intuition is denial. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, a funny gag that, uh, that people sometimes say, denial is not just a river in Africa. <laughs> and uh, the, you know, denial is a hugely important human resource we sometimes need it to build a bridge or to get on a on a, the top of a rocket ship that's about to explode and be blasted into outer space you need a degree of of denial or rationalization but generally speaking denial is the absolute enemy of safety and security denial intuition is your friend and denial is your enemy and denial is there's so many versions of it you know things like that don't happen in this neighborhood Oh, yes, they do happen in this neighborhood, as it turns out, because if they're human beings, they happen everywhere. Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, that'll never happen to me. That only happens to younger people. That only happens when you go out late at night. All of these are denial. There are ways of taking a concern and prosecuting it and then pushing it down. And, uh, you know, look at where we are today, for example, with governments all over the world using fear of a virus. I, I want to talk about that for a second in context, because normally... Uh, like when I was growing up, the fear that was uh, sprayed by government was fear of Russia and the communists, the overseas communists. And then as that began to peter out over time, we get used to Russia. Then it becomes communism uh, instead of communists. Huh? Now it's an idea. Interesting. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. 9-11, it's terrorists, terrorist action then terrorists, not the 19 that were already dead, they're no problem, but they're peers around the world, and then terrorism. And terrorism is a concept. It's an idea. It's not an action. So now we have fear of terrorism. And in America, they talked about chatter. 
We've detected chatter online that might be relevant. Raise the color code uh, to, you know, code red and code yellow, et cetera. By the way, England had that during COVID. They used the same thing, the silly thing with the red, yellow, and, and orange. And now we're in zone red to scare people about, uh, about COVID. But here's the thing that happened that's rather brilliant. Russia's a country. China's a country with definable borders, with a, a, a nation you can go to war with, a nation that can attack you. Then it goes to communists. Oh, they're bad people in that country or in our country. Then it goes to communism. It's getting more diffuse. And now it's the ultimate diffusion. It's now something smaller than talcum powder, a virus. That's the new enemy of the moment. And a virus is so small that it, I can't tell whether it's around. You might have it. He might have it. I might catch it. And so it's a brilliant choice, really brilliant. And, um, and it really worked. It really worked to scare people. Climate and change, what too. Was the yes, uh, climate change is another one. In fact, I would say that all of the big ones that government push, that governments push, are diffuse and you can't get your hands on them, right? War, invasion of, uh, where are you, in Cape Town? Hmm. Okay, so an invasion of Cape Town by Angolan troops, uh, uh, you'll know about it. You'll hear the shots. You'll see the, the missiles, et cetera, et cetera. You don't need to be told by government to run in the house and, and get under the bed. Mm. But uh, climate change, diffuse. Uh, uh, our enemies in politics, diffuse. Uh, terrorism, diffuse. And of course, virus, invisible. They're all invisible, uh, the ones that work best. Why? Because if they're real and they're right in front of you, you can decide, hey, there's no missiles today. I'll go outside and I'll, I'll have a good time. We'll have the wedding. We'll go to the church. We'll, we'll, we'll have the dinner with friends. Um, but if it's an invisible enemy like terrorism, they could be anywhere. You could be a terrorist. You could be a terrorist. That's where government has a really good time because they can tell you whether it's happening or not. And, and you listen. Some people listen. But it seems then that it's almost a pointless battle because it is so overwhelmingly against us here are you and i talking but look at what's going on around us well uh, there are certainly days that uh, that i can be hopeless on these topics but what i try to do is get the helicopter as high up as possible and recognize that there is nothing new here throughout human history uh individuals and groups have sought to control other individuals and groups uh, and if you take, let's say, Caesar, Peter the Great, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, if you want to put Hitler on the list, um, if you want to put Putin on the list, if you want to put uh, America on the list, empires, British Empire, these are all about the same thing, which is I have control over this space. I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. And why do I want that one? I want that one so they can't invade me, so they won't be my enemy. Now, the way you and I do it, if we're having a dispute, is we, we don't fight it about it. We don't go punch each other. We try to say, is there another way to get rid of this enemy? Yes, it's called befriending, right? It's called alliance. Uh, and so, but empires don't do it that way. Interesting thing most people don't know about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would send a delegation to a country and say, hey, we're the Roman Empire. We've got, uh, you know, plumbing and we've got uh, these great water systems and libraries. Have you heard of that? We've got all this great stuff we got from the Greek and we got, we got a lot of stuff. Would you like to join our empire? And if a country said no, they would say, ah, so sorry, but we've also got these 10,000 centurions behind me. We're going to have to do it that way. We've offered you this other way. Nobody wants to fight. If you can do it without fighting, that's a better war. 
And what we've just seen is that without fighting, the powers in the world, it is a war of power against the powerless. That's what we have now. It's not U.S. and China, U.S. and Russia. It is all the countries aligned who are in power against its citizens. That's what we have right now. And But is it different from 10,000 years ago? Not at the core. It's at core, it's always the same thing, control. And what do governments do? What do they spend their money on? What do they spend their time on? Protecting the government. But then when you talk about bef befriending your enemy so as to create an ally and to avoid a war, that really, really tests everything in you because do I want to become friends with Fauci who has, he's, he's in your country and he's affected my country. Yes. Well, I, I'm not very fond of him either. However, imagine that uh, he could be, he's out of that job right now, but let's go back a year. Imagine that he could be persuaded. It, believe me, this takes some imagination, but imagine that he could be persuaded. And after a, a couple of hours meeting, he would say, you know, Gav, I really see what you're talking about. I see these vaccines are not really effective and not really safe. And I'm going to, to make a change. The problem with that that um, fantasy is that human beings like to be right and uh and we are in a war right now with these vaccines double down again and again and again boosters every three months and again boosters for children down to to six months old for god's sake who have no consequence from covid why because they took a position the new york times took a position the trusted news initiative took a position and now they're going to stay with it and uh, they are so afraid of the loss in power that comes when I say to you, we've had this dispute over our property boundary. I'm your next door neighbor. You know what, Jeremy? I'm just going to let you have those two trees and, and okay, I'm just going to do that. Well, there's a little loss of power. Now I don't have those two trees and I don't have uh, the, the ability to, you know, it's hard. It's hard to make up uh, after a war. It's hard for individuals mm -hmm. and it's certainly hard for governments. How significant is suspicion? Because you're talking about vaccines and I and my wife avoided them. And I think suspicion was probably one of the founding variables. For, sorry, not founding, foundational variables. Yes, uh, it's a great question. Uh, so of the signals that intuition sends to you, um, suspicion is one of them. Uh, and it's on the list with curiosity. And the root of the word suspicion, suspicier, only means one thing. It means to watch. Right? So when you get that feeling of suspicion, it doesn't mean, let's say I'm suspicious of you. I'm not doing anything bad to you by being suspicious of you. If I take an action, that's different. But if I'm just suspicious, you know, you and I have engagements with all kinds of people. And some of them, uh, uh, I don't know if I trust that person. So suspicion means to watch, right? So you took an attitude or an approach here, which is to watch and wait. You could have gone the other way and say, give it to me, give it to me. <clears throat> injection one, injection two, injection three. Oh, you want a fourth one? Let's go, let's go. That would be compliance. Uh, and you instead did watch and wait. If you had learned that you damn well better take this vaccination because people are dying all around you and the only ones who are living are the ones who take the vaccine and there's no adverse events and blah, 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 you change your mind. Um, so suspicion is a, a real gift. That'd be another book, The Gift of Suspicion. The Gift of Skepticism as well. Very valuable. Curiosity, you have that as well.
humor and dark humor specifically, I think, have played a big role over the last few years. Yes. You know, funny, the, uh, I know you haven't read Gift of Fear yet, but you're going to see that there's a list of signals of intuition. And on that list is suspicion, curiosity, gut feeling. And the last one on the list is fear. But right before fear is dark humor. And I tell the story of a man I met with. I've had versions of this, you know, a hundred times in my career where somebody says, okay, see you tomorrow for the meeting at two o'clock, unless I'm killed by then. <laughs> and I sit back down and say, okay, let's talk about what's going on. Because that dark humor is itself a signal that men use more often than women because they don't want to show fear. He doesn't say, hey, I'm afraid I'm going to get killed. But that's what that joke means. Unless I'm killed tomorrow is dark humor. And there's another one in the book where a, a, a package arrived at the California Forestry Association. And all the employees were looking at it and they were suspicious and didn't want to open it. And one guy said, uh, I'll open it. And another one who was standing there said, well, I'm going to go back to my office. I don't want to be here when it blows up. And everybody <laughs> laughed and he went back to his office and it blew up and killed the man that opened it, Gilbert Murray, who was the president of the California Forestry Association. It was sent by the Unabomber. My point being that in all these cases, dark humor is an opportunity. I love dark humor, by the way, just it's probably 80 percent of my life is dark humor. So but it's an opportunity to see the truth in it. And if, for example, we were to say, but it's not know, actually it's funny. Dark, you, <clears throat> that's true. If, if broken down, it's not funny. What makes it funny is that it's so extreme or it's surprising that we said it. Mm. But obviously, we actually feel it. Uh, you know, there's another one in the book. I just remembered a, a, a group of people at a corporation in California uh, a, a called the Standard Gravure Company, and they were eating lunch and they heard firecrackers outside or a, or a, or a, the backfire of a car. And one of them said, oh, that's probably Mossbacker, a former employee, coming to finish us off. And that's exactly what it was. Right after that, he broke into the room and shot a bunch of people. And so all of those are beautiful signals of intuition. Those are good, dark humor examples. But right, they're not funny uh, when, when deconstructed. So it's all about risk. And I'm just wondering, where does one then obtain that information well you want to have accurate sources of information to inform your intuition because they're not are cnn so, <laughs> not cnn that's correct and and so there are so many uh kangaroo warning signs like the ones i told you about with cia so the the kangaroo warning signs are, are so ridiculous on the news that I used to joke that, you know, they would have a segment called robbers who hide out in your purse and rob you when you get home. And then they'd give you the warning signs. Purse feels extra heavy. Noise is coming from inside purse. That's how ridiculous they are in real life because they'll say carjackers, um, you know, in your neighborhood. What are the warning signs? You know what the warning signs were from CBS News in America for carjacking? Um, man outside car with gun. That was the warning sign. Like, I need the news to tell me about that warning sign. Um, so they're, they're typically just, uh, you know, idiotic and obvious, or they're actually flawed, right? So a good example right now, since you mentioned CNN and every other uh, uh, Western broadcaster, is um, somebody coughs. Somebody coughs. Uh, they could give you COVID 
which would be immediate death, and you wouldn't even know it's coming. It's like a shark attack. You'd have no idea it's coming. But shark attacks are themselves instructive because everything you need to know about avoiding shark attacks can be spoken in five words. Don't go in the ocean. If that's your priority to avoid shark attacks, and you have them in South Africa, uh, we have them here in Hawaii too, if your priority is to avoid shark attacks at all at all costs, you got it. If your priority is to avoid COVID at all costs, humorously, you could think, well, I'll stay home and I'll never be near anybody. That didn't work. Um, people still got COVID who stayed home and were never near anybody or tested positive, I should say, rather than COVID. I, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, yes, you get a lot of kangaroo warning signs uh, and uh, and you're told to be, you know, we were for the first time in our lives and the first time in human history told that being near any other human being put you at risk of death. I have some footage of um, uh, the head of health in Australia, and she says, um, you may be at the supermarket, you may be shopping, you see a friend of yours, they say hi to you, don't talk to them, don't talk to them, because talking, of course, ah, spreads the virus. That's how people were living in Australia and New Zealand, not South Africa so much, but Australia and New Zealand, which were particularly mental. Throughout human history, the king and queen would look over the castle wall, and there always is a castle wall for good reason, and they would see the citizens fighting with each other. They disagree, there's division, there's two groups or five groups fractionated, and they would high-five each other, the king and queen, because that's the best news they could ever see. Because it's only when all the citizens are aligned that they come over the castle wall. When they're in dispute with each other, that's the best you could possibly have. The Trump people hating the Biden people and the left hating the right and the vaxxers hating the anti-vaxxers and the unvaccinated, on and on and on. That is how power is maintained. Division is how power is maintained. But the elephant in the room then is propaganda, which creates that division. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, you know, I, you're using the word propaganda. I would just use the word communication. Uh, the, 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 you know, there's the old joke, how can you tell when somebody's lying, uh, his lips are moving? Uh, almost everything you hear from a large government will have a degree of deceit in it and spin. And if it's a big deal, if it's a big event, it'll have a lot of deceit. If it's an assassination, if it's a, uh, a, a you know, global event, if it's a war, you know, in, in my lifetime, we had the Vietnam War started on a pretext that wasn't true. Uh, you know, uh, all these things about why countries want to go to war are almost always lies. And they have to be simplified narratives, us against them, they're bad, we're good, they're trying to destroy our way of life, they're terrorists, um, they, they, they kill their own people. And then what do we do when we see a head of state somewhere who we accuse of killing his own people, Syria, Iraq, we go kill his own people. You've mentioned before that a dog doesn't act out of denial. It sees things as they are. Do, do you think sometimes we make things too complicated? No, not sometimes. All the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, to follow on the dog, the dog never says what could be, what should be, the way it used to be, the way it ought to be. We do all that. And the reason is that human beings are in love with and may even be story. 
If you had to define a human being, it may be that we are a collection of stories. That may be the main thing we are. Put aside the, the, the body organism. But what makes us human uh, is story. And so we really like our stories, our individual stories. I'll give you one for me. Uh, my story about myself is that I can accept all kinds of people. I can talk to somebody who loves Trump and somebody who hates Trump. I can talk to somebody who's got 100 vaccines and somebody who opposes vaccines or this COVID vaccine. I pride myself on that reality. Is it true? Probably not. It's probably not always true. Some things bug the shit out of me and really aggravate me and I immediately judge the person and I put them in a, in a hole and based on a snapshot that I took as opposed to seeing the whole movie, right? We, we do this all the time. We are in love with our stories. Fauci's story, saving the world always wanted to do this for so long. He tried in 1976 to, uh, sorry, in 19, in 2007 to vaccinate every single American against uh, uh, the earlier uh, SARS. In 1975, when he was first getting to, uh, to NIH, uh, he was there for 51 years, 52 years, uh, they began to vaccinate every single American, man, woman, and child for the swine flu. After 40 million were finished, they stopped it because it was causing so many adverse events. Well, they don't want to break their story. Their story is, I'm President Ford. I'm saving the world. And so we, to answer your question about whether we interfere with reality by looking through your beautiful words, the fog, uh, this, this fog that we've emitted ourselves and, and is the story between you and me. And I'll give you an example of a story between you and me. We have a story between each other that we're aligned. We see things the same way. We don't know if we see things the same way. I don't, I'm not inside your head. There may be things where you and I would strongly disagree. We probably wouldn't disagree unpleasantly uh, because we pride ourselves on being people in our story who can speak intelligently and reasonably about anything, no matter how controversial. But if it's about uh, your house and me trying to uh, move the property line, all of a sudden you're not so objective anymore. And um, but so I want to answer the question with one word, which is yes, our complicated stories interfere with uh, with our ability to see reality. And I love reality, or at least I tell myself that. How then do you manage the tug of war between the reality that you see in front of you and the reality that is emerging from the realm of the metaverse digital? Yeah, it's very challenging. I think it's part of our of our current problem in the Western world is that the people running the world today, we'll call them the laptop class, they are really not living in the real world. Uh, for example, you order your food to be delivered by Uber here in the United States, and you touch a few keys on your laptop or your iPhone, and the food arrives um, magically. Uh, but in reality, somebody had to farm that food and harvest that food and cook that food and transport it and get it to your house. And all of those things had to happen by people who work, people who work. And I submit that the current view of the left in America is that work, physical work, is a policy failure. <laughs> Nobody should have to work. Nobody should have to work. Everybody should be online. 
And everybody should be able to live through, as Mark Zuckerberg does, through the metaverse. And many, many people do. But what I would describe as, let's say, real people, for lack of a better word for a moment, hey, what's what? we don't glorify work anymore. What's wrong with being a farmer? Oh, I'll tell you what's wrong with being a farmer. Bill Gates wants to automate it. Not just Bill Gates, many people. And we're trying to get the pesky people out of everything. You know, that's a great system. You plant the sweet potatoes, they grow, they're harvested, they're shipped, they're delivered, they're heated up, they're eaten. And the only problem with that system is those pesky people in the middle of it. Let's automate that. Let's get that automated. I live in Maui. Uh, at our store are pineapples that come from the Philippines. And Mexico is, provides our, our papayas. What's going on? We live in a tropical paradise where we should be growing all our own stuff. But it's somehow maddeningly cheaper. And there's a profit opportunity for stores to get this stuff from across the planet using oil to, to steam it here. Um, it's nutty. But it is the result of, of living in the unreal world. Uh, George Harrison of the Beatles wrote that beautiful album, Living in the Material World, and now we are living in the unreal world. It is genuinely not real, meaning it's thoughts and ideas and little electrons flying around is, is the opposite of real work. You know, you go outside and fix something in the yard. That's work. Uh, but it's not, it's not uh, honored anymore, and it's not glorified anymore. Uh, so I think we really are living... We are run by people who do not understand the physics of the real world unless it's digitized. You've mentioned previously the um, the disadvantages of niceness or being nice. Well, in the current moment, it relates in the form of compliance, right? People are so afraid. Like I, I had an interesting experience. Uh, masks were required in any uh, business. And here in uh, Hawaii, and most states had a version of this, all small stores, the neighborhood store owned by a family, had to be closed. And only the what's called the big box stores, uh, Target and, and these kinds of stores, they could be open. Now think about it. They're giant air conditioned buildings that beautifully refrigerate a virus, and you let a thousand people go in and walk around, but you won't let me go to the neighborhood store and buy something. He has to go out of business while the big box stores became enormously and more successful. Walmart, I don't know if any of these are familiar to you, but they're big American mm. chains. Um, so I had this experience where my sons and I, 12 and 14, decided, you know what? No more masks. We're not doing it. Right at the height of masks, you know, when you had to do it, you're not allowed to be in the store without it. So we just walk in, no mask, no mask, no mask. And I tell you something, Jeremy, it was quite remarkable. Almost every time, nobody said anything to us. They looked at us, but nobody said anything. And occasionally an employee would come up and say, oh, put your mask on. And I would, and just say, higher up on the nose, they would say, oh, you'd like it a little higher up on the nose? Okay, how, how's this? And then as soon as they walked away, we took it off. And slowly, we realized that nobody had the temerity or the lack of niceness to even uh, you know, uh, tell us to stop not wearing a mask. Today, when I see people wearing a mask, which is no longer required by law, sometimes you see somebody in a closed car by themselves wearing a mask uh, or out in a park. And now I actually have developed, instead of being put off by them, 
I've developed a kind of regard for them, and I'll tell you why. Because today, they are not compliant, meaning they at least are going against the crowd, which I admire. Do you follow the thinking? Now, they may be silly or unreasonably afraid, or they may be brilliant. Maybe they're the ones who live forever. Who knows? But the bottom line here is that niceness, which is an enemy when you are a woman is approached by somebody who means to do her harm, niceness allows him to stay in her environment and saying, stop, I'm not interested in your help, ends the encounter more quickly. And niceness, people are taught, is, you know, you'll be in more danger if you say stop. Our version of that is compliance. Robert Kennedy Jr. has a very, very good statement that he makes, and he says, it is impossible to comply your way out of tyranny. Right? Tyranny does not go away with compliance. It expands. And so I, I quickly remember I talked about get the helicopter up as high as possible and, and look at world history. So if this is world history, this is the pie of world history, all of it is tyranny except for a tiny sliver right here of the U.S. and Western Europe. All the rest is tyranny. And so tyranny is the human norm. And as systems get big, uh, governments start as 200, I mean, 200 people get together. Imagine we lived with 200 people and we said, let's get Steve and Arlene to be our administrators. And they'll, they'll sort of put out the rules and they'll ensure compliance. And Steve and Arlene gather everybody together and say, okay, now I want you to all wear masks and pat your head all the time and put a big red circle on your face with lipstick here and always hop on one leg. We say, Steve, uh, you, you two guys, no, we're not doing it. We're not going to do it. And, and further, uh, we're, we're going to relieve you of this job you've got and it, push it a little bit and we'll throw you out altogether, which is the worst thing you can do, which is banish someone. Unfortunately, with centralization, Steve and Arlene are 3,000 miles away running the world by, uh, you know, by digital means. And so I can't go and say to Anthony Fauci, Anthony, could, could you please stop this? It's destroyed my business. Three million businesses have gone out of business forever. It's causing riots and demonstrations and, and, and death and loss and lockdowns have killed many more people than, than, uh, than, than COVID or what you attribute to COVID. And, but I can't do that. I can't get near Anthony Fauci because he's 3,000 miles away and guarded and in a big, you know, a big uh, government building. So um, compliance is the social equivalent uh, to, uh, to niceness. So niceness is not a feature. It's a, I think you've said it's a strategy. It's a yes, it's a choice. Absolutely. So the person who's nice to me, uh, let's say a man is nice to a woman because he wants to date her. It's not that he's always nice. He's not nice to everybody. He mm -hmm. is using niceness and charm is a verb to charm someone. But when people say he is charming, I say, you mean he is charming you. He is charming you. Uh, he's, that's a verb. He's choosing to be charming. Like I'm a very charming person, not to everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. But when would I be charming? Strategically, when I wish to see myself a certain way or engage with you in a certain way, I might be charming. Only you and your audience could actually tell me if I'm succeeding at this, uh, this choice to charm. <laughs> um, okay, but then Gavin, what is the practical application then of understanding fear and it being a gift? Listen to, to fear when, first of all, define it correctly. So if you are uh, at the airport and you're 
walking toward the boarding gate and you suddenly find yourself full of fear about getting on this plane and you get that signal, don't get on this flight, don't get on this flight, don't get on this flight, ask yourself what you are reacting to. If it's true fear, it will be that something in your environment, something you hear or smell or taste or see. True fear is a signal in the presence of danger. However, if that fear comes about because you saw something on the news three weeks ago about an airplane crash in Venezuela, that's in your memory or your imagination. That's unwarranted fear. But if it is fear because you saw the two pilots stumble out of the coffee shop drunk and board the plane laughing and giggling, that's true fear because it's in your environment, right? It's in your environment, in your situation. So the first thing is to know what's true fear. The second thing is to listen, to listen to it. When COVID started, for example, all we knew was two metrics, over 60, die. That's all we knew. I was over 60. I didn't want to get COVID. I only had those two, those two uh, data points. But a few weeks later, I got the stats from uh, Italy, which were the northern Italy, which were the first stats to come. And I quickly learned that uh, about 99% of the people who died had 3.7 comorbidities, meaning they were already had other fatal diseases. The average age was 81 years old. They were already very sick. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm not that. So will I take a 99% risk? Shit, yes, I do it all the time. Fly on an airplane, go hiking, do all variety of things that 99.7 for my age. Um, will I take that? Sure. Will I stop life because of it? Uh-uh, I won't. I saw the same data and I'm, I came to the same conclusion. I, I came to the same conclusion back, uh, back in yep. 2020 already. Yep, uh, me too. And I, I gave it to all my clients as well. And it only got better because in America, it went from 3.7 uh, uh, fatal comorbidities or 2.7 it started at in Italy to 3.7 in the United States, meaning these are people, I give you the best stat to come out of uh, the pandemic uh, drama, the very best in my opinion. In Canada, there are many people whose deaths are attributed to COVID. Look at the phrase I'm using, deaths attributed to COVID. I don't know, I wasn't there, but uh, I'm not there doing their autopsy, but the government attributed their deaths to COVID. 70% of them, 70% of them were residents of nursing homes. They were living in nursing homes. So what do people do in nursing homes, by the way? They die. You can be absolutely certain. I, I could throw glitter around the outside of the building and they die from that, if you want to say it. The bottom line is that the average stay in a nursing home in Los Angeles or New York in a Medicare funded nursing home, government funded, is six months. So I could walk in there and say, you're all going to die from COVID. And boy, they would, uh, because that's what's happening in the next six months. So when I learned that 70% of the people whose deaths were attributed to COVID in Canada lived in nursing homes, um, I may be over 60, but as you can see, I'm not ready for a nursing home. And you sure aren't. So it's very telling to choose deaths that occur predominantly in the very elderly and the very sick. Because if there's one thing you can be certain of, Dr. Fauci, that population will give you a lot of deaths. I can promise mm. it. But to be fair, you and I are speaking in hindsight. Now, for example, Bill Gates has said that there's going to be another pandemic, right? So he said it. With what you have said, how can it be used in, in a positive way? Well, skepticism would be the key because we know... Um, uh, you know, you folks have exaggerated and lied to us in the past. And by the way, 
Is Bill Gates right that there will be another pandemic? 100% correct, but it has nothing to do with viruses or nature. When you declare a pandemic, up to $20 billion is immediately released. When the world, all World Health Organization has to do is pandemic. They did it about monkeypox. Now, uh, monkeypox was not taken very seriously in America. Uh, so they changed the name to M-pox because monkey sounds a little uh, funny uh, and not so, uh, not so sinister. And, uh, uh, but still, one million people took the vaccine for monkeypox, which is a very dangerous vaccine, which is the vaccine for smallpox. It's so bad that many big medical institutions in America recommend against it because it has very severe adverse events. And you would only use it in the event of a smallpox outbreak. And so a million people lined up in the United States to get that vaccine which on the CDC website, they say the, they give you the kinds of people who shouldn't take it. They, they tell you what are the conditions, right? You shouldn't take it if you have eczema. You shouldn't take it if you have a history of heart problems in your family. I'm quoting it. It's in my new book, a history of heart problems in your family. Could you show me the family that doesn't have a history of heart problems in their family? So these million people, oh, they all didn't have a history of heart problems in their family. They basically said this vaccine is safe. On the, on the CDC website, they say this vaccine is safe unless you fit into one of these categories. And then they listed hypertension and uh, they listed something that would, would touch almost every American. So it's safe except for almost every American. But Gavin, yeah. why don't you trust the science? <laughs> I trust the science. I love that. Um, so, you know, science, of course, is not a thing at all, uh, but a process. And the process includes as its heart. The heart of it is skepticism. The heart of it is to ask. You know, I have here, uh, just read a fast quote from uh, a really good quote from Carl Sagan, a very, very well-regarded uh, scientist in America has died now. He says, if we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we are up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes ambling along. One more paragraph. It wasn't enough, Jefferson said, the founders of the U.S. Constitution, it wasn't enough to enshrine some rights in a Constitution or a Bill of Rights. The people had to be educated and they had to practice their skepticism Otherwise, we don't run the government. The government runs us. So my answer to your question about how we can use what's happened as a gift is that now skepticism uh, is, is, is the best protection we have as an overall population. But I'm quite hopeless about that because the overall population has shown itself to be um, lemmings and, uh, and to follow uh, authority. And that's almost, um, it's almost genetic. Why don't mm. you follow authority? Your own life history, it's almost genetic. You could call a friend tomorrow who you haven't talked to in 10 years, and I'd say to you, Jeremy, before you call him, tell me, does he believe that he should wear a mask and take all the boosters? And you'd, you'd say, never, not Bob, no way. And you might be surprised. We've all had that experience. I've had friends who say, I'm going to come visit you in Hawaii. How are the numbers there? Wh which numbers do you mean? Oh, the numbers of infections. Oh, I got you. Um, so uh, somebody I would never have imagined. It's almost genetic. I, I, I can't really nail down why it is that you and I can have this conversation and other people that we both know would not participate. You're standing on the battleground of the information war. 
and you're looking out at the horizon, what is it that you see? Uh, long periods of uh, destabilization and revolution, though it might not be like the French Revolution. It might be different strategies of revolution, but I think a, a complete overturning of this current world order is probably in our future. How? I don't know. Or conversely, we might uh, follow the path to transhumanism and it won't matter uh, because uh, humanity in its present form won't be the same as even uh, what's the the scientist who's with uh, often speaking at the uh, World Health Organization? I think he's Israeli, who talks about uh, we're already modified beings. Oh, the um, is... Harari, I think his name is. Yes, Something yes, like yes, yes, yes. Uh, so as he says, already we're we're already uh, not completely human. We've already been modified. This is a genetic modification, and it'll be happening inside our bodies rather than just persuasion. Where can I find your work? I think the best place is um, uh, Gift of Fear, all scrunched together, no, uh, no, no uh, uh, punctuation, giftoffear.com. That has a 10-hour masterclass series that's free for people to see, which is the Gift of Fear masterclass. And there, there's a lot of good information. And also gdba.com, gdba.com, GDBA is Gavin DeBecker & Associates, that's my company. And that's about 800 people, 27 offices around the world. It, it, a big company, which we're hiring, by the way. Uh, like everybody in America, we, we need employees and uh, hard to find. But uh, giftoffear.com would be the main place. And of course, Amazon, uh, my, my books and what have you. Gavin DeBecker, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, Germ. I've, I'm really a big admirer and I'm glad to have spent this time with you. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.